You're listening to DraftKings Network. Welcome to Golik and Smitty. I'm Mike Golik. I'm Jessica Smetana. I wanted to ask you about some of the dumber things happening in college football right now, namely what's happening uh, around the Michigan football program with <laughs> head coach Jim Harbaugh, which I know you're well-versed on because we talked about it on your podcast, yeah. uh, the Shutdown Fullcast last week. So tell our audience what is going on with Jim Harbaugh. What are these NCAA violations? Is he actually going to take an NFL job? Okay, so here's the short version as I best understand it as of today. Um The NCAA learned that two already committed Michigan recruits contacted Jim Harbaugh, said they were on campus, and he said, great, I'll take you out to breakfast. They went to the Brown Jug, which is like a diner diner slash bar uh, in Ann Arbor, where Jim Harbaugh paid for their breakfast on a university credit card and allegedly had two hamburgers with french fries for breakfast himself, which is hilarious for deeply personal reasons. It has been pointed out to me that if you adjust for coaching hours, breakfast might actually be lunch. That's so true. It's, so, so I can understand that by 10 a.m. he might have been That's thinking, like, point. we're on to lunch at this point. Um, now we get to the point. So so that part is the vi- that part is a violation of this happened during the COVID uh, no contact period that was in place for that year, where basically the NCAA said you can't do any in-person recruiting because of COVID restrictions. Other schools have fallen uh, victim to this or, or have, have run afoul of this, I should say. Arizona State is the most prominent. This is an example that feels a little bit like, yeah, I guess technically that is a, a violation, but it's not like they were like holding a recruiting event in the middle of COVID. It's just sort of like, hey, we're in town. Do you want to have breakfast? Still, it's a violation. The big problem and the level one violation, the highest one, is that the NCAA has in so many words said that Jim Harbaugh has lied to them about this, that he has denied that this breakfast ever took place, even though there is allegedly a receipt with his signature on it, even though Ah. people have said that they saw him eating breakfast here. And even though that this is in the grand scheme, an incredibly minor violation, like if this is true, what will happen? Like, this is not the kind of violation that the NCAA is like, that's it. You miss a bowl game. That's it. We're taking 15 scholarships away. Like, nothing will happen here. But Jim Harbaugh has decided to dig in and insist that this this breakfast did not happen. And, and he will, as far as I know, will just refuse to admit it. At the same time, his agent, it would seem, is out there putting him in position to get NFL jobs. I know, I think the Broncos have already said that they want to interview him. He's been floated for the Colts job. Um, obviously the Arizona job is open now. So like there are places he could go, but now we are in yet another season of Jim Harbaugh playing this kind of confusing, like I'm going to go unless situation with his university at the same time that he is potentially getting said university into unnecessary NCAA hot water. It's very weird. Like the more I explain it, the more I don't understand what's going on or why. Uh, the, the violation is is just stupid. Now listen, yes. I get it; it's a violation, but it, it should cost you ten dollars. It should cost you. <laughs> it should cost you the amount of that breakfast and say, just don't do that again. Yes. So I have two things. One, real quick, Michigan fans, aside from all that, should be very happy that Blake Corum is deciding to come back 
for his senior year. That was a big blow to them. A guy who, I think, what, had 18 touchdowns, mm-hmm. 14, 1,500 rushing yards. That's cool. The other thing, and I think this is for both of all of us, because we've all been to a breakfast joint. There is no breakfast joint I've been at when you're there in breakfast hours where you can get a burger. So this has to be just for the fact that you're the head coach of a, of Michigan, right? That you're getting special treatment here because if they're not even on a menu. You know, if, if it says breakfast 6 o'clock to 11 and you're looking at the breakfast menu, there sure as hell ain't no hamburger on a breakfast so, menu, so, right? So, Mike, here's the thing. This menu, this restaurant, its whole shtick is all the dishes are named after important Michigan people. Jim right. Harbaugh has him as an item on this menu. It's like the steak platter or something. He didn't even, but his dad has the burger is named after him. It's the Jack oh. Harbaugh burger. Okay. So I assume if you're Jim okay. Harbaugh and you walk in and you say, I want two dads, they say, yep, yeah. you can have that. Jess, uh, Rebecca Lobo uh, uh, had a, had a fun call. I'm, I'm sure real quickly, <laughs> your thoughts on that, on that game Sunday with Iowa and with uh, LSU. It was amazing. It, it was amazing. The play on the court um, exceeded, I think, everybody's expectations. You know, for both teams to finish the game shooting uh, at, a, at at least 50% from the field. For LSU, a team whom averaged five made threes per game on the season to make nine in the first half. It was a great exhibition of women's basketball um, because anybody who tuned in saw, wow, these women can can really, really play. They can shoot the ball. They can pass the ball. Um, and the crowds were unbelievable um, in the arena around around the city of Dallas. And of course, our ratings were, were sky high. But what always um, warms my heart is when we get a lot of eyeballs on the product and the product delivered. And it certainly did in the entire Final Four, but especially in that championship game. So now, you know, the, the, the part that unfortunately took the headline Mm-hmm. Uh, was the Angel Reese, and, and to show you my age, I was just doing our Sorry in Advance podcast with our family, and this whole hand thing is you can't see me. I'm, I'm like, what does you can't see me have to do with what the hell is going on with the court? And it was my son, Mike, who was saying, basically, it means you can't guard me. I'm like, okay, someone okay. say you can't. I, I, I mean, Can I interrupt it, you for a second, yes, second Mike? Yes, So, So we're calling the, um, the regional championship. I'm out in Seattle, and it is Iowa playing Louisville. And it's the first time Caitlin does this. Right, and we're good right. how it is. We roll out to a break with this. And I right. say on air, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I had no idea what it meant. I didn't. And so then people are tweeting at me, you know, oh, it means, you know, John Cena, you can't see me. And I said, I still don't understand right, what that me means too. and what it has to do with basketball. So anyway, you and I are together. Yeah. <laughs> and then I Mike love was... the layers of confusion happening oh, from it... like, I don't even know what this is. And then other people being like, I don't know what this is either, but I'm mad. Like, yeah, but I, I'm mad she did it, you know? And, and so I guess just your whole, m- my quick thought is you either like that stuff, hate that stuff, or you're indifferent. Would, would right. I want my kids to do that? Probably not. But I am certainly not going to make that the lead story at all. I'm overseeing youth. So, I mean, I... I I, it doesn't matter enough to me. You, Rebecca, have kids who you are coaching and who are playing, so you are, when you see something, I, I guess first, how, what did you think about the whole brouhaha, and then how would you approach that with your kids and coaching them? Well, it wasn't a brouhaha in the moment. Like, no. you know, we, we, we called the game, we showed that replay, and that was that. We, we knew what she was doing because, um, you know, we had called the game where Caitlin had done it. So there wasn't a brouhaha within 
the women's basketball world, you know, until it, it got into social media. So like celebrating yourself is not my cup of tea. It's not what I did when I was a player. It's not what I encourage my kids to do. Um, but I don't have a problem certainly with, with anybody doing it. And I, I would, and I never ever would assign anything towards the person because of what they did on the court. And, and we, we, and when we're at the final four, I get to meet with these teams and get to meet with these players. And Angel Reese is a delight. And she's a smart, thoughtful person when you're sitting in the meetings talking basketball and, 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 and her willingness to include her team and talk about her team in an incredibly generous way. So the frustrating thing is when people then assign whatever they are going to assign to a um, to an athlete and a person because of some sort of celebration that they've done. Yeah, Rebecca, I, this is like an existential question that I've talked to with my other podcast co-host Kate Fagan about too, with so many eyeballs on this game. It almost attracts like the worst aspects of sports media coverage from that we see a lot on like the men's side to the women's side to have these like incendiary reactionary like things where they don't know the player they don't know her story they don't know that she's mm -hmm. felt snubbed by not being on awards list earlier this season they don't know caitlin clark has been doing this celebration before and that she's been you know th showing up three point signal every time she hits a three that like this right. is her style of play too and so it's like i, I wonder if there's almost like it it was so popular that it was almost unavoidable that something really stupid, given the, the media landscape and social media and everything like this would happen. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts at all about that. <laughs> well, it's sometimes people outside of the sport tried like to hijack the conversation a little bit. And this and Mike will remember this, you know, for a number of years when when UConn was winning um, championships the first round of the tournament would come. They were in one seed and they would destroy the 16 seed. And the conversation, we'd come in on, on you know, the second day of the tournament and the pervasive conversation is UConn bad for women's basketball. And I would get so frustrated because then we would have, you know, these pregame shows or whatever in studio. And instead of me breaking down this player or that player, I then have to answer the stupid narrative is UConn bad for women's basketball. And so I think that's what happened here a little bit too. And, and, and part of it is great. You know, like if, if we get Iowa playing against LSU next year, that would be amazing. This will have led to, to more interest in the game. Um, and, and, and whether you like the celebration or don't like the celebration or how it happened, um, the personal nature of it is what is most offensive. And so if you're going to parachute into the sport and comment on how the women play or comment on the celebrations, whatever, that's fine. But the personal attacks um, are, you know, are the part that's troublesome and are the part that, um, you know, you, you, you would almost rather. All right. You can you can stay outside. We don't need you as a fan if this is what you're going to going to bring to the table, because, yes, everybody who was at least partially aware of the sport knew exactly what that interaction was all about, whether you liked it or didn't like it. And I think one of the things that also was getting lost here is the player who it didn't bother was Caitlin yes. Clark. Yes. Caitlin Clark said it, she didn't even see it. She was headed to her 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 handshake line. She didn't care. So you know, for the, all the people that are offended on behalf of Caitlin Clark, Caitlin Clark didn't care. So um, you can choose to, when you're playing pickup to celebrate how you want. You can choose to have your kids celebrate how they want, but don't go attack a 20 year old woman um, in a personal way because you don't like um, the way she celebrated it in one of the biggest moments of her life.
Uh, right. 100% agree. That, that, those people that do the personal attacks, I guess I just consider the source on some of them because it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Right. Uh, and, Rebecca, the, and the yeah. people that tend to say like, oh, is UConn bad for women's sports are oh. always, of course, they're the people that care the most about like gender equity and, and all right. the things that, you know, <laughs> all of the things right. that go into that that's what's anyways. fueling their commentary right, right. is their deep concern for yes. women's sports yeah yes, yeah exactly. and, and also the team they root for can't beat UConn you know the best way to stop <laughs> UConn is to beat UConn you know and and nobody could do it for a while so for and I time, and, yeah. and as a Notre Dame grad I had to live through that for years and years so I feel good about I know doing, we should have made a bet this no, year no we shouldn't have no we shouldn't no, have you guys beat us. You guys beat UConn oh, this year. Oh, the regular, in the regular season. season. You're right. You're right. I, yes. And every time I, I get ballsy and make a bet, I'm Peyton. You're Peyton my face. <laughs> you know, UConn color. So. Notre Dame's going to be really good next year as long as Olivia's healthy, man. Watch out for them. I, ho- I hope so. But UConn also is going to be really good true. next year. So I don't. maybe they'll both be in the Final Four. We can do a bet. Coach, um, boy, oh boy, I can't wait to talk about your team on the field because your team is absolutely stacked. Had a great year last year, your first, your, your year at Washington, now your second year, ready to go. But, I mean, it's been unbelievable what's going on in the landscape of college football, especially the Pac-12. So, I guess first we'll just start, and what, what are your overall thoughts on what's transpired in the last 24, 48 hours? Yeah, it's certainly been crazy, and um, you know, I think the the piece that uh, about it where it really hasn't been crazy is it's really nothing you can control as a football coach, and so uh, be able to keep the focus on the team, be able to keep the focus on the staff, and what we're doing day to day here as we start camp. Um, that's actually been pretty simple. It hasn't really been a lot of questions, even by the players. They're focused on the twenty twenty three season, but. Uh, you know, I know that uh, our administration, um, President Kause, Jennifer Cohen, our AD, been working uh, extremely hard to, to make sure we're in a good spot moving forward here at UW. So one of the things that you can control is your recruiting pitch. So how immediately have you had to change that now that you're, you know, talking to players and, and college football coaches say, you know, you're always recruiting now in the, in the portal era, right? So how are you telling uh, your players and maybe pr- prospective players about what to expect now moving forward at Washington? Yeah, you never want to say it got easier uh, because I don't think that's the case. I think the recruiting piece is, is definitely hard and uh, complex uh, at times. But um, a lot of the things that were questions being asked of us uh, throughout the spring, throughout the summer with official visits, guys, especially in the 2024 class where it's coming down to that time where they make a decision. Um, you know, a lot of families sit in my office wondering, you know, what conference, like, what's it look like? And uh, a lot of times my answer was just, uh, you know, talking them through and telling them what I know and, and uh, trying to get them uh, to be comfortable with the fact that at University of Washington and not to be saying this in a conceited or arrogant way, but we're at a great place. We're a place where academically, athletically, um, there's a lot of uh, great things that we have going for us. We're in a city that, um, you know, certainly has a great market and people are going to want our traditions and our history uh, of what we've done, not just in football, but all athletics, all sports, um, to be a part of their conference if things would ever fall through or not be uh, in a place where that is favorable, you know, if the Pac-12 uh, had some situation just like what happened. And so um, a lot of it was just uh, them trusting in us. And, uh, you know, it's opened up some new doors with some prospects, that's for sure, here in the last couple of days as well. So I, I wonder a lot, 
coach about the process because obviously players don't make this decision, coaches don't make this decision, hell, ads don't make this decision. This is this is university president. So, how through this process were you kept in the loop of what was going on? Well, it really wasn't until late. You know, I, I think a lot of times it was fluctuating so much um, based on what I understand. You know, and how it seemed to be going day to day, to where um, even something you were being told really didn't matter that much because the next day it was uh, going to be something different. And so, um, you know, I ask questions because I'm curious and you get asked questions by the coaching staff, but, um, you know, and the answers were there, the best, uh, the best that could be answered. Uh, but as far as, um, you know, really any, any offering of uh, information from my end, uh, other than, you know, you good with this, you good with that. Uh, you know, from a head coach standpoint, that was about all was my, my involvement was uh, in this whole process. Okay, one more question about conference realignment before we talk about actual football a little bit. Um, one of the big talking points has been, you know, with all the West Coast teams joining the Big Ten, how is travel going to work? You know, it's a lot of strain on players to make trips across the country from the West Coast to the East Coast or Midwest. Is that something that you've thought about at all or something that concerns you moving forward? Well, I think every sport is different, right? And, um, you know, just the travel and the amount of games and trips you got to make um, from a football standpoint, you know, I certainly think uh, we'll be fine. Uh, you know, I, and I don't know anything about the schedule and what it's looking like, but I, you know, have to think that there'll be the West Coast games and then the rest of the conference schedule being split up home and away, um, you know, going across the country a little further. So, um, you know, that being said, football doesn't play as big of a and long of a or as many trips and many games. So, you know, um, I think there's a plan uh, that, uh, you know, uh, where there's a home base and, and, you know, it doesn't mean it's perfect, um, but I do think that there are other resources now that become available um, because of our involvement in the Pac-10, I mean a Pac-10, yeah, <laughs> the Big Ten, um, I gotta get that straight, right? Uh, it's because of the Big Ten here down the road in the years to come. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel fine about from a football's perspective and I'm sure each sport, you know, at different schools and a lot of them might be their geographical location might think otherwise as well. Aside from Michael Penix, there's a handful of other really, really great quarterbacks in the Pac-12 this year. It's It's been dubbed the, the the conference this year to watch quarterback play, and your team's playing a handful of them. You're playing Caleb Williams this year, uh, Bo Nix, Cam Rising, Cam Ward. Uh, you don't have to like rank which ones you think are going to be the most difficult test for you know your defense and, and matchups for you, but who are you kind of – what which one do you have circled on the schedule that you're you know you think might give you the most trouble this year? Yeah, I mean this is the honest truth. We uh, had our first you know meeting uh, offensive or offensively, defensively, and as a team um, before we even had our practice, right? And uh, you know the defense showed uh, nine clips, and it was nine different quarterbacks in the league that are making these stellar plays, and all of them were with their legs. We know about them as passers but all of them made them with their legs and, um, you know, 70, 80 yard touchdown runs. Uh, so it isn't just one. And, uh, you know, the one that's going to be the most important is the next game. And I know that's coach speak and you want something a little bit stronger, but uh, I mean, we really, the, the league is full of these quarterbacks and, you know, even some of our non-conference games, um, you know, are going to have quarterbacks that are really athletic too. So we got our hands full each and every week. Um, it's going to be a fun 
uh, season from a fan's perspective because uh, there'll be some, uh, you know, offenses that are rolling up and down the field, you know, throughout the course of the year. All right, Mike, now we need to welcome on the newest member of the Notre Dame family, the new head men's basketball coach, Micah Shrewsbury. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. So b- before we get to the to the Notre Dame job, you were, you were coaching Penn State last year. You got to the second round. You beat A&M, and then you lose to Texas. Talk about that experience from the players' side of it, you know, getting into the tournament, and then what you thought going to the end with UConn taking out San Diego State. Yeah, it, for us, it was, you know, I was there two years, and it was quite a climb to – that's what we were hoping for, to have a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. We had some really good um, guys that we had brought together that really fit our, our system. And we had a, a little bumpy road to get there, but uh, we found our way at the end of the season. Um, played great in the Big Ten tournament. Had a, a really, really precise game for us against Texas A&M where we played great. And then you know, fell to a Texas team who I thought was one of the better teams in the country. Um, the the one of the guys, Disu, if he doesn't get injured, um, I think you know they have a chance to make a Final Four. But you know, they lost to a really good Miami team. So you know, the tournament is is it's always full of surprises. It's always a matter of who gets hot, who's playing well, and that's what you saw uh, from all of those teams, Miami. Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, and then obviously UConn was playing at a, at a really high level, and uh, you know they deserved to win the national championship. So we want to ask you the important questions first. So M- Coach uh, Marcus Freeman has been on the podcast before. He has a candy dish in his office with a lot of different types of candy. He has chocolates. He has Starbursts. Will you have any such thing in your office at Notre Dame? I, You know what? I probably will, uh, but it'll be just for me. It won't be for anybody that's coming in. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, players. You guys can. Uh, you guys are gonna have to bring your own snacks in here. But uh, Marcus Freeman is super fit. And that, that's you know probably why he has candy dish for everybody else. Uh, I'll have my own candy dish. <laughs> so so what 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 would be the go to candy? I'm I'm a Reese's Pieces guy. Um, Peanut M&M's, there's actually in our little kitchen over here, there's some Starburst jelly beans, which... Oh, they're the best. They are the best. Very addictive. Yeah, the problem with them is when you get Reese's Pieces or the peanut butter M&M's or, like you said, the, those those uh, um, Starburst, is you can eat so many of them. It's like potato chips. You just you just keep slamming them, and then you're like, oh, man, I ate way too much. Yeah, no, that that's definitely something you got to worry about. You got to think about, you know, then you're looking, and it's like, all right, I got to refill this bowl because I ate every single piece of, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that was in here. <laughs> so it's always interesting in looking at the the where a coach has been in his career, and if you're Wikipedia, any coach, you see a number of stops along the way. And it's interesting, your the other head coaching job you had was IU South Bend, yeah. right? Right, South Bend, where, where Notre Dame is. So, what what was from that experience to where you are now, and what led you back? What led you to Notre Dame? Yeah, it, I talked about it in my press conference. Um, we lived right around the corner from campus. You know, my wife and I. 
Um, so, you know, I used to make the drive every day down Ironwood and, and ride by campus and I could see it and, you know, I'd drive by or pop around and just, you know, kind of dream of what would happen or what this would be like. And I was 30 years old at the time. So, you know, I, I, I figured I had a lot of time left in my coaching career, hopefully to one day do this, but, you know, as long as you kind of keep your head down, you keep working towards your goals, um, good things happen. So, you know, I, I, I had an unbelievable experience here in those two years. Uh, but, you know, I, I took I ended up leaving because Brad Stevens got the job at Butler at the time as the head coach. And I went and joined his staff and everything kind of took off from there. Um, we went to the tournament two years in a row. And then the last two years, we went to the national championship game. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of stinks that as a bad reminder that last night during the game, they're talking about the uh, lowest scoring halves uh, yeah. <laughs> in Final Four history. You just look up there and you see Butler and it's like, ah, it was, <laughs> you know, it was great that we got there and those guys, we have great memories, but, you know, we didn't play our best in that moment. But it was it was a part of life that helped propel me, uh, you know, so I could get an opportunity like this. I went from Butler to Purdue and worked with Coach Painter for a couple of years. And I went with Brad to the Boston Celtics, which was uh, great for my career in, in learning. Um, and then back to Purdue for a couple of years of, I guess, almost finishing school uh, with Coach Painter again before I got the opportunity at Penn State. So there's been a lot that's happened since I was here last, I've, I've grown a lot as a coach. So you went from college to uh, assistant at the pro level back to college, kind of, kind of similar to Neil Ivey, who was an assistant with the Grizzlies before becoming the head coach for the Notre Dame women's team. So I interviewed her a few years back, and she said the biggest difference from, co- from pro to college is pro basketball is all ball. You don't have to worry about schoolwork. You don't have to worry about like extracurricular stuff that students have to do. So what are some of the, the things that have been the biggest difference for you going from the Celtics back to the college level? And how do you apply things you learned in the NBA back to like coaching your students, uh, student athletes? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think what helped me was I was college coach before. Uh, so I didn't have much of an adjustment going there and then coming back. Right. Like, the time constraints are obviously a little bit different, you know, on a college campus when the guys that you have to work with, you know, they have class throughout the day. They, they have studying, homework, tests, whatever, uh, once they finish practice. So you have to balance their time way better as a coach and, and understand that, you know, basketball is really important, but, you know, they also have, you know, a really tough course load to, to work on here. You know, they have social life that they're trying to manage as well. So uh, understanding that and getting that in order uh, is really important. And then, you know, since I've come back, there's a lot of things that are different with the transfer portal, with NIL, with uh, college basketball has really changed in the last few years. So just being able to adapt, I think the NBA is, has allowed uh, or helped me adapt, right? Like, you, you never know what's going to happen in those teams, in that program, right? There, there could be somebody on your team. My first year in Boston, we, we were trading guys that shoot around. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, a guy would be there. We're like, hey, we're gonna, who's going to guard Kevin Durant? And it's like, 
Well, we just traded him. So <laughs> you guys change your game plan between shoot around in the game and good luck tonight. So you got to think on your feet. You got to adjust on the fly. And uh, I think that's helped with all the changes here in, in uh, college basketball that's happening now. All right, Michael, here we go. Uh, another draft. One, you have been part of many of these on your uh, your years through the NFL. A couple stops in Ouch. Cleveland, obviously San Francisco, Philadelphia, the Raiders as well. So I, I love this, though. You started out at UNLV. This is what I always loved. When I would get ready to call games, I loved going over coaches and or managements like their history. So where you are now or what you're going through the NFL, go all the way back to first getting into this. What was it? 81 to 84 UNLV, yeah. the, the recruiting coordinator. And just th that's back in my, my years at Notre Dame. Sorry, Jess, we're the old. old no, I mean, you here. started out with like an old, like, well, like, Oh, you've been doing this for a long time. He, listen, buddy. He, he knows I'm not digging in him. We're around the same age. So yeah, I mean, we've, we've been doing I, this. For I, a I while. don't take it. I wouldn't take it that way, Mike. I appreciate it. Hello. Thanks for having me. I, I, I was fortunate in life uh, that I grew up on the Jersey Shore, and I saw this guy on television that looked like he belonged in my family dinners. He had a big nose and olive skin, and then I had this guy telling me to cross Highway 9 and chase a dream, and I combined those two things. So when I went to college, I knew I couldn't play pro football, but I wanted to be involved in football. So... I just started going to coaching clinics when I was at Hofstra University in the off season. And I would go for years and drive my little Toyota around. And I got a job for un, for no money here at Las Vegas as an assistant, assistant to an assistant. And I started my career here. And then I was fortunate enough to become Bill Walsh's driver, which was the greatest job I ever had in my life. Uh, I carried his bags. I, I drove his car. I did whatever he wanted me to do. And I worked in scouting. And then from there, I just was able to, to kind of start my career. So I, I've been really blessed. I, I'm fortunate to be around two of the greatest coaches of all time, obviously Bill Walsh and Bill Belichick. And then working for Al Davis was uh, a, a great learning experience for me. So I, I've been really blessed. I, I look at this experience as a, a life well lived. Hey, Jess, I want to ask you something of what he mm -hmm. said, because I know and understand it because I did it as well when he said, I worked for no money. Does your generation understand that at all? Oh Sometimes when you start out yes. that you have to work for no Mike, money. The federal minimum wage hasn't increased in like 30 years. I think our generation <laughs> no, understands. But we said no money though. We Jess. said no we money, Jess. Minimum wage. I was getting I, holiday in coupons to go to the, you know, and Burger King coupons. That's how which, I was. Which is ridiculous because I'm sure Al Davis or whoever you were working for at the time was probably making like <laughs> Bajillions you know of Al dollars. Davis? Do you know Al Davis? You yeah. know how he paid? I mean, well, on. I know how his son used to cut his hair. So, yeah, I guess he probably wasn't spending a lot of the extra money he was making on things. So, nothing, I guess, nothing surprises me. Uh, I think me Al Davis pays like the, the Chargers do now. Uh. You know, I, I mean, it, back then it was a luxury to work in the NFL. You know this, Mike. I mean, before this TV revenue hit, I mean, guys kept jobs for a long time. And, you know, the owners really didn't have this kind of wealth. I mean, for a team to be sold for $6 billion now or plus, I mean, back when I started in 84 with the 49ers, the, the, the TV revenue per team was $16 million per team. I mean, it, it really is incredible where it was and where it is now. And you mentioned, and I was going to bring it up, because there's a couple of things to talk about. I want to concentrate on the draft now and then 
we had the, the, the trade go through with Aaron Rodgers. So there's a lot to get in with you. As, as you mentioned, you know, you're from a scout to pro, uh, personnel director, director of player personnel, uh, to GM. And you mentioned to two of the guys you were with and Bill Walsh and Bill Belichick. So let's start there, especially getting ready for the draft. What, what are some of the, the, the biggest takeaways you learned from those guys as you're preparing your draft board? I think the number one thing, uh, both of them echoed this commentary all the time, is it doesn't matter where we pick the players, it matters how they play. And we are in constant conversations about this. You should pick this guy five. No, no, he's not good at five, but he would be good at 12. Oh, no, 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 you can't pick him there. My board says you can't pick him there. It's all nonsense, right? Does it matter? It only matters how they play, you know, and that is the end of the day is we're grading players for a draft to describe how they will play for our team. The description tells you where you should pick the player, not where, not just saying he's a first rounder or he's a sec. It means nothing. And both of them really believe that. And both of them believe that there were players out there that if given an opportunity, they could be really good, that it didn't matter about their pedigree. It only mattered about how they played. As far as so, as you look at players through the years, so let's let's look at at this year's draft, and you know there's the height, weight, all the combine stuff, which that could be a whole nother discussion. But then tape of how they actually look on the field. But then you start to throw in stuff. You go to you have a Laramie Tunsil situation, a Warren Sapp situation, something off the field that happens. And this year it's Jalen Car uh, Jalen Carter, an absolute you know, devastating player on the field. But now some of those questions off the field, how do you go about evaluating that and putting that into the sequence? Well, the first rule of scouting is to know more about the players before you draft them than after. And so you, and today, when I started in the league, you could go to Notre Dame to scout Mike Golick and the coaches there would tell you everything you didn't know about him. You could go in the training room and the trainers would tell you every injury, they would give you everything. They would, you know, but the laws in the country don't allow this any longer. So going to a college campus today, you're not getting very good medical. You're not going to get the inside information on the player. So you have to find out how to get information. Information is the most valuable tool in the NFL draft. And really being able to determine character, right? That's been the hardest thing. If you look at some of the greatest draft mistakes, it's been really not over the evaluation of the talent. It's been the evaluation of the character, whether that means performance enhancement drugs that was in the character that made the guy a better player or whether it was a character off the field. And that's the challenge to get into. And with Carter, you know, nobody at Georgia is going to say a bad word about Carter. They're going to say he works hard or they're going to say all the right things. You're going to have to find a way to dig deeper and to see who you're getting and can you manage this? And then whomever drafts Carter and somebody's going to draft him. Whoever, then they got, you got to have a plan for him. Okay, this is what we have to prepare for. You know, this is what he, we need to work on. And you're going to have to teach the young man how to become a professional player. We just can't assume they're just going to know how to be a pro. You're going to have to spend time teaching them. And it's got to be hands-on teaching. It just can't be, okay, we're going to go to the rookie seminar. Go ahead and you figure everything out. No, 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 that ain't going to work. you got to spend time coaching the kid up on how to be a pro. Can you divulge any any tactics? Because now, like you said, you can't go talk to a coach and yeah. a trainer and figure anything out. Like, are you hiring private investigators? Oh, what, I, what are you, my favorite one, God rest her soul, 
we, when I was in Cleveland, we hired a young lady named Carly McCord, who unfortunately died tragically in a, car, in a plane accident on way to uh, watch her father-in-law coach in the LSU championship game. And I hired her because she had this unique ability to, she was a broadcaster by trade, but she also had an ability to connect with players and they loved her and they talked to her. And she had a sorority sisters all over the country. So if I asked her a question about Johnny Manziel, she knew the answer. And, and the one thing you always want to do is find players when they're comfortable. They relax. So if you go to campus, if I went to go scout Mike Golick today at Notre Dame, I wouldn't spend time at the Notre Dame office. I'd go to the local, local brewery and ask the bartender about him. I'd go to the campus security and find out about him. I, I would do everything. I would go to the sorority houses and see who he's dating, who he dated, because that's the only way you're going to get real information. And Carly was such a, an amazing person. Uh, I only had her for one year when I was in Cleveland and got fired, but she was incredible. I called her. I was in New England. I called her and said, you know, make sense of this uh Collins, remember when Larry Collins had the incident where his girlfriend got shot and, and, and everybody thought it was him? I called her up and said, what do you think? And she said, there's no way he did that. There's no, I know this kid. There's no way he did it. I know his family. I know the situation. And we didn't draft him because of the uncertainty. We had a whole, we had a whole security department in New England working to find out the facts. She knew him before anybody. So that's the kind of stuff you have to do today. You have to you have to disguise yourself. Years ago, we sent Jim Schwartz, now the defensive coordinator of the, uh, of the Cleveland Browns. We sent him. He was a young scout with us. This is before he became a coach. We sent him to the uh, Playboy All-American Club uh, weekend out in Phoenix, Arizona. Always happened on, on Mother's Day weekend. He was single at the time. We sent him out there. Didn't let him wear one thing that said Cleveland Browns. He looked like he was basically working in the custodial department of the Biltmore. And when his notes came back about what he described of the players were just incredible. Ray Lewis's notes, the most dynamic leader I've ever seen, could rally people around. That's the information you got to find. And I saved those notes. I still have them from, from 19, you know, and he described everybody perfectly because that's the only vision you can get. So, in, in, Michael, in this era of there's so much tape available to watch or in person to watch or information to get, we're about to have at least four. We'll see if Hendon Hooker goes into the back of the first round. But we'll have at least four quarterbacks go in the first round from Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Anthony Richardson, and Will Levis. And history says two will be a bust. With all the, all the information we have, why does that happen? Because we, we try to make something that they're not. Okay? Will Levis. I like Will Levis. Why did he transfer from Penn State? Why couldn't he beat out Sean Clifford? If he's as good as he, everybody says he is, Penn State should have won a national championship with him at quarterback, right? I mean, so there's things that you can't answer. Why did Mitchell Trubisky, the player of the year in the state of Ohio, Mr. Ohio, have to go to North Carolina? Why didn't he go to Ohio State? Why did he sit three years behind? Bill Walsh taught me this years ago, don't take the one-year player and look, and look forward. Take the one-year player and look back. So we have to look back on some of these kids. And I think really, to me, and I've said this on my show, I've said it on my podcast, it's a one-quarterback draft to me. It's a one-quarterback draft. I think there's one guy that I could say he's going, to be a gen he's going to be a really good player. I think the Bears would have never traded the first pick overall in the draft if Bryce Young were six feet two. The 5'10 allowed them to do it. I, I think he'll overcome the 5'10, but I'm hesitant to say that because there's not a lot of history. But he's unique. He's got instincts, awareness, timing, 
Walsh would be able to – if I always sit there and say, who would Walsh like in this draft? And Walsh would like Bryce Young. Would he like anybody else? I don't think so because their feet aren't tied to their arm. There's a little bit – Anthony Richardson's a great athlete. I think he should have gone back to school. Tremendous athlete. But you're going to spend two years getting him ready to be a year away from being ready. It's going to take a while. How does a quarterback like Josh Allen change that equation, though, when you have teams that can find someone who – if you look back, why did he go to Wyoming, right? That's not really a Power 5 quarterback powerhouse university. Why didn't he go to a, an Ohio State or an Alabama? Probably because where he grew up. Same thing with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, why did Aaron Rodgers only have one offer to go to Cal? Why did Tom Brady just have Michigan? Tom Brady was drafted by baseball. You know, I think that's part of it. I think you are part of your 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 history is part of it. And I, and I think if, you know, what Josh Allen was able to do for Wyoming's football program was pretty good. Now, if Anthony Richardson played up in Wyoming, would he have had similar numbers to what Josh Allen did? We know he's improved his accuracy. He's a big man. He's physical. He runs with the ball. But there's always an exception to every rule, right? There's always some guy that kind of makes things happen that you're not used to. But you can't live on exceptions because if you draft exceptions, you become a team of exceptions. So – as you go through the draft board and everybody sets theirs and has multiple players, obviously, in case that the, an, another player is gone, what's the acceptable amount of distance between draft picks before you get to this guy was a reach? If you, if you have him at 10, but you want to maybe have to think you've got to take him at 8 or 7, where, where is that line of this is now a reach? Well, it really matters how they play, right? But if you're taking a guy at, at, at four and you could – like Cleveland Farrell, the Raiders take him at four, you know, he probably should have gone somewhere in the 20s. He didn't even run a 40. I mean, Al Davis, who's the man who loved 40s more than anybody, would have never done that. He's not drafting anybody without a 40. So I think there's that. There is certainly draft management. I mean, you know, we took – we were getting ready to, in 1986, Jess, this is long before you were born, but in 1986, <laughs> we were getting ready to take, Bill Walsh sent me to the blackboard. Do you even know what blackboards are, Jess? <laughs> sent me to a blackboard, right, and said, write these three names down. And I said, okay, coach. And I wrote Gerald Robinson, defensive end, Auburn. He said, write John L. Williams, running back, Florida. Write Ronnie Harmon, running back, uh, uh, Iowa. Okay, wrote them on the blackboard. Next pick, Robinson goes. Next pick, Williams goes. Next pick, next pick, Harmon goes. We have nobody left to pick. We're going to pick Larry Roberts. And Bill knew you couldn't pick Larry Roberts, the 20th pick. So we bought a half hour of time, traded with Dallas. They picked Mike Sherrard. And then we kept moving back. And in that draft, we end up with Larry Roberts, Tim McHire, John Taylor, uh, uh, Charles Haley, Steve Wallace, Tom Rathman, Kevin Fagan, and Don Griffin. We end up with seven guys who could. So you, sometimes when you move back, you move back to get really good starters, maybe not the blue chip player. And I think you have to really understand that that's part of the horizontal board. Everybody talks about the vertical board in football, right? Okay, here's how I have this guy ranked. Well, there's a there's a horizontal board. How does this guy, this quarterback or this running back compare to this offensive tackle? Who's going to make that decision? And so the horizontal board and the vertical board are really important. And I think that that's where value comes in, Mike. Gojo, as you all know him, the Gojo show on DraftKings. And already they're both laughing at me. See, this, <laughs> as, I, as I said, you know, I'm going to get my son Mike to come on because there's a lot to talk about in sports and, and certainly that he was at a Taylor Swift concert and TV shows out there. The two of you 
It's like when you get together are giddy and ripping me for my age. Because I say one thing and you both drop your heads down and laugh. Jess, why is that? No, it's true. And it's causing me problems in my personal life because I was on vacation with my boyfriend's parents over the weekend and I made fun of his dad like for four days in a row. And I was ah! like, I have a, I have a problem. I need to stop. I need to stop doing this. I am so oh disrespectful. You really, you, and you do realize at some point, yes, you're going to be my age. Okay. I hope, I hope I live that long. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's going to happen when you get disrespected at that point and how you're going to feel. That's how I feel. Okay. Yeah, I know. And now yeah. the fake fake tears come. Okay. Whatever. Crocodile tears, Dano. It's <laughs> and now, you know what it is? It, it's very easy. And I I see it already happening now because as a millennial on TikTok, I just get torn apart by a lot of these Gen Z kids yes. and I get made fun of for being an old vicious. So they are. They're they're terrifying. Like as as empathetic as they are vicious. So I get what you're going through, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna stop either. Well because you did like you did the air quotes thing. Like you did it like you're fucking Dr. Evil on Austin Powers. Well he does that all the time when he says Gojo. For some reason he says it like really like cutesy, like the Gojo podcast. He does it every week. Is my podcast I don't know why. a joke why, to you? Why do you do that? God, why are you guys barraging me like this? I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. He just doesn't. I mean, I like it. It's it's fun. Well, no, no, no. You both considerably laugh and drop your heads like you're almost disappointed in me well, when I do something like that. So here's the thing, Jess. There is a correlation that I did not know from her concert to the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs that Mike will now fill you in on. And well, I saw some, some tape of the guy on stage. He really is unbelievable. Isn't the connection that we went to school with her brother and you also cover the Chiefs? I mean, that's a one degree of separation right there. That's a connection. That is a connection. This is a even better connection. A better, a better that, is, that is true. This yeah. is the first time I've seen her since I saw her at football practice where yes. Golden Tate preempted our stretching lines to go over there and shake Taylor Swift's hand as she was going around the field. So <laughs> not since we had sent uh, she had sent our practice into a tizzy. But no, we were sitting there, and her backup dancers are a huge part of the show. Again, there's like acts to this. It's a full-blown play. And one of her performers was a bigger guy who moved incredibly well. And we all said, had big D-tackle energy. Just the way he moved around out there, his combine scouting, would have been, uh, footwork, smooth mover, great hips. And so my brother was so enamored, he looked him up after the show. His name's Cameron Saunders, and he's actually the older brother of former Chiefs and now Saints D-tackle Kalen Saunders, who was at wow. the Saturday night show with his family. I guess he lives outside of Vegas and saw some really heartwarming posts. So Cameron is the older brother of Kalen, who's the NFL player, but you know his kids call him T.T. Goofy. There was all this really cute stuff in there, and he was a huge part of the show, a dynamic performer. And so top to bottom, it's a really impressive group of people that came together to give the most impressive show of a concert I've ever seen. Is this a career opportunity that you missed? Like, could this have been your second act? 100%. 100%. What, a backup dancer? Yes. Oh, my God. You have good footwork. Yeah. I've seen yeah, you, you move. Do. Good enough footwork. I'm all down for the outfit changes there. I have a background in middle school theater, so I could have done some <laughs> of the bit parts and you, the various... Like, you totally... Like, it's not too late, first of all. You're still very young. But also, like, I, I think you missed out a little bit on this. Yeah, now that you say it out loud, I'm kind of swelling with regret. 
Because he looked like he was having a great time, and he gets to hang out with Taylor Swift. How okay. he moves is unreal. Jess, this guy is, when we say D-tackle, he looks like a D-tackle. But, I mean, he moves like he's 110 pounds. It's really impressive. Is there a reality show about, like, becoming a background dancer? I, it sounds like something that probably already exists. But if it is, we need to get you on it, or we need to invent it ourselves so that I, you can I think win that's, it. I think that's the making of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. I think that's the... Oh, no. Yeah, the, but yeah. for... Background yeah. noise. Yeah. Is that a thing? That's the that No, that's the name of the show that I would pitch. Background noise. Let's do it. I, I, I feel like it already... Like, every type of reality competition show has been made... So I feel like yeah, there's a MILF Manor exists. This thing's got to exist. But. I was MILF so, Manor? Oh, yeah. You haven't like, seen that one? No. No. So I have not. MILF Manor, I, I, I didn't watch the season, but they set it up with this shocking reveal in the previews where you had all these MILFs in a house that were getting ready to date. And then you find out what is the assumed plot twist at the end was they're actually in a manor all dating each other's sons. Seriously? Yeah. This is where we are. Jess, do you watch MILF Manor? I don't. It sounds like legitimately horrifying. It sounds, it sounds like something that if Sigmund Freud were still alive, he would have dug his claws into immediately. I mean, there's a lot going on with that show. And that's what I mean, Mike. Like, every reality competition show yeah. has been made. So this probably exists, and we need to get Gojo, Gojo on it. I, I bet it, Gojo. I bet it would be pretty cool because, again... You talk about Taylor Swift and performing what these, you were saying, what oh, these yeah. dancers do, and to do that 52 times. Yeah, so I go back to the original question is, man, can she hold up? All those people hold up. I just, well, I figure, like me and Sydney were talking about this after the show. It has to be like how we see now when you see players getting interviewed in the locker rooms after games and they're already in the Norma text or they're riding the bike to flush stuff out and guys are working out. It's got to be like a pro athlete recovery program. Yeah. And I oh, hope that sure. means they're also doing HGH. 